Good morning. Glad you're here. Would you please pray with me again? Father, we bow before you. Our desire is to honor you, to exalt your son. Father, would you give us what we need? Would you lead us? Would you feed us? Would you glorify yourself in our lives? Would you give us what we need this day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 61. Isaiah 61. The prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because Jehovah hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, and to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness and the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Well, this prophecy should be familiar to you. It should be. And the reason it should be familiar to you is because our Savior fulfilled it. There was a day in the ministry of Jesus when he read this scripture aloud, and then he claimed that he was the fulfillment of it. Turn over to the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter four, or chapter 4. Luke 4, and look down to verse 14. The Bible says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord." And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Well, was this the assigned Scripture reading of the day? And so Jesus located it in the scroll and began to read it? Or did He search the text for this particular passage? Well, it's not, it's not totally clear. Either way, we believe that history is His story. But the incident that Dr. Luke records here is of Jesus quoting this passage from Isaiah 61 and then telling His hearers, Today, today this Scripture is fulfilled. What a wonder. 
Do you remember that time when John the baptizer was in prison? And he sent some of his followers to ask Jesus, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus' answer to them resonates with what we just read in Isaiah. He told them, go show John the things that you see. And here, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Matthew 11, 4 and 5. Did you understand, friend? Again, again, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. If you look back to Isaiah 61, you'll note that Jesus didn't quote the whole passage in Luke's record. Specifically, he quoted verses 1 and part of verse 2. But if you look at the whole passage in Isaiah that we read, it's clear (laughs) that all three verses that we read apply to our Lord. And this morning we'll look most specifically at the end of verse 2 and verse 3, which says, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Well, a, a question that we might pose, that we might ask of the text is, who is this anointed one that's speaking? Who's the preacher here? Now listen, that's always a good question to ask. You remember the question... That's the question that the Ethiopian eunuch posed to the Apostle Philip when he read from the prophecy of Isaiah. You remember this from Acts chapter 8? The eunuch asked Philip, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? That's always a good question. So who is this God-anointed preacher? Well, we know. We know from His words in Luke's Gospel that He, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, He is the preacher. We also know this as a messianic text. In verse 1, the prophet speaks of the anointed one. And you know that in Judaism, the meaning of the term Messiah is anointed one. So our Lord applied this text to Himself. So the preacher here is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the anointed one, the King. Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, He's the preacher here. He's the one anointed by the Almighty Father to preach good tidings to the meek, liberty to the captives, freedom for the prisoners, and so forth. He's the one that brings this good word that we read in verses 2 and 3. And and if you look there, look there in the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, who is this good word for? Who's it for? It says there, to comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. So Christ's good word here is for mourners. Specifically, for mourners in Israel. For mourners in Zion. Brothers and sisters, listen. There's divine comfort here for mourners. If you are a mourner in Zion, if you are one who has come unto Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, if that describes you, And if you're a Christian, it does. 
then there's some special comfort here for you. Christ's good word, His benediction here is for mourners, and especially for those who mourn in Zion. So friend, let me ask you a question. Are you a mourner? I believe that many of us here are or have been. And listen, there are here for us great and precious promises about what our Lord does for those who mourn. Because I'm here with you, I know some of the things that you mourn for or that you're mourning about. But think with me for a moment more generally about some of the things that make Christians mourn. Well, we we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Romans 8, 22. If you have eyes in your head and your mind has been renewed by grace so that you can think even somewhat clearly, then you will mourn because of the curse that God has put on this planet because of human sin. The troubles that we endure because of damage, all the brokenness, is this not a cause for mourning? Well, friend, it is for me. Count Tolstoy, Leo, said, In the name of God, stop a minute. Cease your work. Look around you. And friend, if you will look around, what you'll see in the words of that 20th century poet, Robert Zimmerman, is that everything is broken. Everything is broken. The trials of life, the sweat and toil that accompanies our labor, be they intellectual labors or physical labors, the sicknesses and illnesses that sap our strength and trouble our minds and our bodies, these things that affect all of humanity, they afflict the people of God as well. Christian people are still people. And we groan with the creation. We mourn. Can't we all relate to this, saints? Now listen, listen. Besides seeing the effects of the fall in our own bodies, what about the effects in our loved ones? What about when we see the body of a loved one ravaged by disease and we're at a loss to help? When we pray and we want to do no more, but there's nothing, nothing, no thing that we can do about it. Is that not a source of groaning, of mourning? Beloved, it is. It, it is. Saints, listen, we, we believers, we believe. We believe that our God is perfectly and completely good. And we are committed to evaluating everything that we see and experience through the light of our belief. God is good. So, when we behold evil events, when we observe this we can be assured that God has a morally good reason for all the evil that exists. Well, somebody should say amen. We may not know what it is, but we rest in the goodness and power of our God. God certainly must be all-powerful in order to be God. But He is surely good. So any evil that we find must be compatible with God's goodness. 
But saints, listen, even, even with our belief in the high sovereignty and goodness of God, we often encounter cause for mourning. And beloved, I think because we're Christians, we mourn more. Actually, I don't just think that, I know it. I know it. You see, Christianity humanizes you. It makes you more like God. You know, godly. God-like. And because you're a Christian, listen, because you're a Christian, your mind becomes different. Because of the presence of God's Holy Spirit within you. And because your mind becomes more holy as you systematically partake of the words of God and Holy Scripture. Your mind becomes more sensitized to reality. And oh, beloved, listen, there is a burden in wisdom. There is a burden. There is a mourning that often accompanies such wisdom. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can remember as a young Christian having the great blessing of being befriended by a great and wise Christian man. And I can remember telling this man, one of my mentors, I want to be a wise man. And I remember that one of the things that he said to me was, you'll suffer. He said, you'll suffer. And beloved, it's true. It's true. Let me show you. Have you, man of God, or have you, woman of God, have you had the experience of seeing someone that you care about deeply? Maybe a co-worker or a family member or maybe even a child. Have you had the experience of seeing them make a very unwise decision? And you can tell exactly where it's going to lead. You know. But you know if you say something, all it will do is arouse wrath. Have you had this experience? And so you have to decide, do I say something? Knowing that it will not be heard. Maybe so that <laughs> I'll feel better later thinking, well, at least I did something. Or do I stand by and remain quiet and hope that, well, maybe after all the smoke clears, maybe I can still help this person that I love. And what do you do? What do you do? Have you experienced that? Well, if you have, listen, it's because God gives wisdom to His people. But beloved, have you felt the mourning that comes with being able to see like that and not really being able to do anything about it? Brothers and sisters, my point here is that we certainly mourn with all humanity as we struggle with the effects of the curse. But there are kinds of mourning that Christians experience that this world knows nothing about. And the mourning that accompanies the wisdom that God gives is one of them. Listen, saints, I'm not a prophet, but I think I see the end. The telos. I think I see the end of this transgenderism stuff. And it's dreadful. Maiming, mutilation, horror, insanity, homicide, suicide, death. It's horrible. The wise man said, in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Ecclesiastes 1.18 so hear me, Christian, you, Christian, you have wisdom. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, and He has come to us. We have wisdom. But the great wisdom that Christ brings is often accompanied by mourning. There's another thing that causes Christians great mourning that doesn't affect the world. And you know what that is. It's sin. It's sin. 
True repentance, listen, true repentance always includes conviction, contrition, and confession. When a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl comes under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God, true Holy Ghost conviction is always followed by contrition. And a key ingredient of contrition is mourning. A key ingredient is mourning. Beloved, listen, listen. Glib, flippant, capricious Christianity is not true Christianity. Now, I don't want to make you sad, beloved, but understand all the saints of God are mourners. All the saints of God are mourners. The great apostle Paul describes righteous mourning over sin as, quote, godly sorrow, unquote. He wrote to the Christians at Corinth and he told them, Though I made you sorry with a letter, I don't repent, though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though it was but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by me in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 10. So listen, there is a sorrow, another sorrow, another mourning that only Christians know. A sorrow that this world neither experiences nor understands. And that's mourning over sins that we've committed. And mourning for the indwelling sin that still remains in us. You ever make yourself sick? You know, that tendency that we often feel still to follow our flesh rather than following the leading of God's Holy Spirit. That's a cause of mourning for us. It's a cause of mourning. But beyond these, listen, beyond the mourning that we experience as part of the human condition in the trying circumstances of life, beyond the mourning that we experience when we see our loved ones suffer, beyond the mourning that we experience when we have wisdom that the world can't understand, beyond the mourning that we experience when we're confronted with our own sin and even our continuing sinfulness, beyond all of these, there's another, a higher, an even more mournful mourning that only the sons and daughters of God experience. And friend, that is mourning over our crucified Savior. In Zechariah, the prophet describes the mourning of the saints over Christ. And he writes, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 In John chapter 19 verse 37, the beloved apostle applies that prophetic scripture to the crucifixion of our Lord. So, following the apostolic hermeneutic, we can be confident that Zechariah is speaking of Christ, the beloved Son, whom we have pierced. We're, <laughs> we're not only confident because of the words of the apostle, listen, saints, we're confident because the testimony of the saints is consistent. They all look upon their crucified Savior. 
They all look upon the pierced and bloodied body of the Son of the living God. And they mourn. They weep bitter tears. Listen, it is the sins of the saints that nailed the Savior to the tree. It's for the sins of the saints that He suffered and bled and died. I was there when they nailed Him to the tree. My sin swung the hammer that caused His misery. It's for the sins of Christians that He suffered your sin, my sin. And this is a cause of mourning for us. And now, listen, now, even now that we've trusted the Savior, when we sin, is not the mourning even deeper? More intense? Why? Sometimes we're now even offended with ourselves. How could you do that? Right? That we would do an injury to the precious Son of God by sinning against Him. Oh, brethren, it's a cause for mourning. It's a cause for great mourning. But listen, (laughs) have you heard me? Don't we have cause for mourning? We do. The trials of life, the afflictions that we and our loved ones face, the injustices and wickedness that surrounds us, our own sin, our continuing tendency to sin, even the realization in our own complicity in the torture and death of the Son of God. All these things are causes for Christian mourning. But saints, listen. Jesus, our Savior, our God, He said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. All Christians are mourners. All of them. And beloved, such mourning has effects. It has effects. And what are the effects of such mourning? Well, if you look back to Isaiah 61.3, I think you'll see them there. Our text says, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, and the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. Well, I see in, in this verse three effects of mourning. Ashes, a lack of anointing, and sackcloth. In the Orient, sackcloth and ashes were a symbol of affliction and mourning. Under the Old Covenant, people wore sackcloth or ashes when they were in mourning. Those who had sinned or those who were distraught would often clothe themselves in sackcloth and put ashes on their head. When when Jacob was deceived by his sons with that lie that his son Joseph was dead... The Scriptures say, Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. Genesis 37, verse 34. When Tamar was raped by her brother Amnon, she put ashes on her head and tore her beautiful garment. Her outward expression of mourning mirrored the inner torment of her soul. When Esther's righteous uncle, Mordecai, heard of the plot of wicked Haman to eradicate all the Jews from Persia, he mourned. And the book of Esther tells us, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. Esther 4 verse 1. When righteous Job loses everything, he sits among the ashes. And at the end of that book, when Job repents, when he changes his mind, 
in a basement before God, he says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, the Bible says the people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he rose up from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. Historians tell us that the people of Israel weren't alone in using ashes in rituals of purification and mourning. And certainly we see that in the Ninevites who were not Hebraic people. Archaeologists have found ashes appearing in Phoenician burial art and even Arabic expressions. And listen, ashes are also a reminder to us of our common origins. The second chapter of Genesis tells how Almighty God created man from the dust of the ground. And listen, friend, though we spend our lives trying to distinguish ourselves from others, running after successes and trying to show how different we are from everyone else, the dust and ashes that we're made of reminds us that we're all the same stuff. We're reminded not only of our beginning, but also of our end. In the words of the curse in Genesis 3, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. That's why at many a Christian burial, the minister utters that ancient phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The ancients were certainly aware of this. When that first Jew, Abraham, Father Abraham, when Father Abraham negotiated with God over the destruction of Sodom, he confessed, Behold now, I have taken upon myself to speak unto the Lord which am but dust and ashes. That's what you are. What I am. Ashes are all that's left after something is completely burned up. You know? In the natural realm, when something is broken, you can fix it. But if it's been burned up and reduced to ashes... It can't be restored back to the way it was. It's gone. Only ashes remain. Ashes are what is left after destruction. And listen, they are a fitting symbol for distress. Another effect of mourning, listen, another effect of mourning is a lack of anointing. And whether it's the symbolic lack of anointing of the ancients or, or, listen, the inability to groom oneself that often accompanies extreme mourning and grief. The mourner is not anointed the way the person not mourning is. You've seen this. I'm going to stop by the house and tell them I love them. Oh my goodness, it looked terrible. They've been crying all night. Have you seen it, friend? The aftermath of King David's sin illustrates this. You remember after the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sin, David's child was smitten with a grave illness. And the scriptures tell us that David fasted and refused to sleep in his bed. Instead, he lay on the ground all night in affliction before the Lord. But after the child had died, the Bible says... David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came down into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. 2 Samuel 12, 20. After the morning, the king arose and anointed himself. We would say he showered and shaved and put his cologne on and 
his good clothes. And those of you that have been in extreme grief or have ministered to those in extreme grief have seen the effect that mourning has on a person's appearance. The swollen eyes, the disheveled and unanointed appearance, it's effects of grief, friend. The effects of mourning. Another, another sign or effect of grief is the sackcloth. In our modern day idea, we might picture somebody dressed in a burlap sack, in rough cloth, maybe even a feed sack with armholes cut in it. But in reality, the the ancient appearance would have been much different. Sackcloth was often made of coarse black goat's hair. And as its name indicates, it was used to make sacks but it was also customarily worn by mourners as a sign of affliction or deep repentance. In, in some countries, the ancient custom is still faintly seen today when mourners wear black armbands at funerals. Our modern custom of wearing black or dark colors to funerals probably derives from the customs of the ancients. And we see in verse 3 at least three effects of mourning, of grief. Ashes, the lack of anointing, and sackcloth. But look there. Look there. What does Jesus bring? What does Messiah bring? What does the anointed one bring? He brings us beauty for ashes. The Messianic text indicates an exchange. This for that. Our Lord and Savior removes the ashes of mourning and in their place, He leaves beauty. The Hebrew that's translated beauty here can also be translated garland or diadem. Garland, like the garlands that we see in the pictures of the ancient Olympians. That's how the New American Standard translates it. Or diadem, like the crown of a queen or a king. The New International Version translates it, crown of glory. Listen, the image is this. Messiah, the anointed king, will make an exchange. In place of the ashes the fruit of destruction, the image of grief and mourning, in place of that, He says, I will give you a garland, a crown of glory, a royal diadem, beauty for ashes. Beauty instead of ashes. And brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus came to give us an ornament a garland, a diadem, beauty instead of ashes. Jesus lifts us out of our mourning and gives us reason to rejoice. He healed incurable diseases, leprosy, withered limbs, blindness, issues of blood. He raised sons and daughters and brothers from the dead. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And whenever things look hopeless and we feel helpless, He is there saying, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Beauty for ashes. But look back there to our text. He also brings the oil of joy for mourning. It's another messianic exchange. Our heads are unanointed. The cares of this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all these things can trouble the mind and cast the saint of God into mournfulness. But the Savior brings anointing to the parched brows of His people. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. 
Beloved, there, there is a balm in Gilead. There is an anointing for the heads of God's precious ones. And it's the very oil of heaven. It's the precious oil of God's Holy Spirit. And He anoints the minds of all His sons and all His daughters with it. As He Himself was anointed, our Savior anoints us with the oil of gladness. Instead of mourning, He brings us the oil of joy, the oil of gladness. He says to us, Rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. And what else does our Lord bring to us? Well, look there. Instead of sackcloth, instead of the spirit of heaviness, He brings us a garment of praise. Look there at this divine exchange. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, there's a record of the dedication of Solomon's temple. And in the description of the Levites, you know, that was Solomon's praise and worship team. The Scripture says this, listen. All the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jejuthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests sounding trumpets. And it came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, He is good, His mercy endureth forever. Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. So the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of Jehovah filled the house of God. These fine white linen garments that the singers wore, listen friend, those were garments of praise. And in these fine linen garments, the singers of Asaph and the singers of Heman and the singers of Jejuthun, they sang praises to the Lord God of Israel. In John's vision, in the book Revelation, John sees the saints of God and the armies of heaven clothed in white linen, fine and pure and white garments of righteousness. Garments of praise. Instead of sackcloth and mourning, instead of the spirit of heaviness, our Lord has brought to us the garment of praise. My brothers and sisters, listen. Our Savior claimed that He was anointed by God to do this. To bring us beauty for ashes. To bring us the oil of joy for mourning instead of mourning. To bring us a garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. And how does He do this? How? Well, He does it by saving us. He does it by saving us. Listen, when Christ comes to a sinner, He cleanses him. In the great transaction of heaven, the guilty sinner is washed in the blood of the Lamb. He is bathed in blood in that fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. And there by faith the sinner has all his sins washed away. Christ washes His saints in pure water and He keeps them clean by the washing of the water of the Word. Not only does He cleanse His people by His holy blood and by the pure water of heaven, He anoints His people. Instead of mourning, He anoints them with the oil of gladness and joy. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. When Christ saves a sinner, listen, there's great joy. 
There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. And a sin can never bring true joy. True joy only comes with genuine repentance. The Scriptures teach that one of the features of life in the kingdom of God is this, quote, joy in the Holy Ghost, unquote. And Christ gives joy to all those who enter His kingdom. And how does He clothe us? Oh, He clothes us in fine white linen, which is the righteousness of saints. God clothes His people. God clothes His saints. And brethren, listen, in a day of rampant nakedness, when we've lost our sense of shame, it wasn't this way for the ancients. There was no shame so shameful as nakedness. When Jehovah would humiliate His whoring bride, He strips her naked in the presence of our lovers. Ezekiel 16.37 After the fall... In the imagery of Scripture, nakedness is shameful and humanity needs to be clothed. And what does our gracious God do? He clothes them. And Christ does this. His people are clothed. When Jesus saved the Gadarene demoniac, we read, they came to Jesus and they saw Him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in His right mind. And do you recall that most troubling of Christ's parables? The one where the king comes and finds somebody trying to attend the wedding, but they don't have a wedding garment. Jesus said, when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 11-13. Listen, beloved, it's not so with us. Christ has clothed us. He's given us a wedding garment. So in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, we read, Let's be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Friend, we are the bride of Christ. And He has clothed us in fine white linen. He has clothed us in the righteousness of saints. Friend, what great blessings our Savior brings to us. Beauty for ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. May we praise our wondrous God, for we can surely say with David, Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to Thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to Thee forever. Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. Would you stand with me for prayer? Beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. Let's pray. O Holy Father, fountain of all good, Destroy in me every lofty thought. Break pride to pieces and scatter it to the winds. Annihilate every clinging shred of self-righteousness. Implant within me a true spirit of lowliness. Open in me a fount of penitential tears. Break me. Then bind me up. Thus shall my heart be a prepared dwelling 
for my God. Then can my Father take His abode in me, and the blessed Savior come with healing in His touch, and Thy blessed Spirit descend in sanctifying grace. O Holy Trinity, three persons in one God, inhabit me, a temple consecrated for Thy glory. When Thou art present, evil cannot abide. In Thy fellowship is fullness of joy. Beneath Thy smile is peace of conscience. By Thy side no fears disturb, no apprehensions banish rest of mind. With Thee my heart shall bloom with fragrance. Make me fit through repentance for Thine indwelling. Oh, nothing exceeds Thy power. Nothing is too great for Thee. Nothing is too good for Thee to give. Infinite is Thy might. Boundless is Thy love. Limitless is Thy grace. Glorious is Thy saving name. Let angels give Thee praise for sinners repenting, for prodigals restored, for backsliders reclaimed, for Satan's captives released, for blind eyes opened, for broken hearts bound up, for the despondent cheered, for the ignorant enlightened, for saints built up in the most holy faith. We ask great things of Thee, our great God. In Jesus' name, Amen.